So we're sort of getting into today um, our, our material, um, our first section. Before we do, I want to introduce one of our guests here, Wyatt, correct? Wyatt. Uh, University of Dallas, I want to come and see. Uh, so he'll be joining us today. Hopefully this will make him want to come to Notre Dame. We'll see. This beginning section, though, is going to be, as I said, the status questionis, the state of the question today, trying to situate sexual ethics in the real world and what we're facing in our culture, and I think the PPF alluded to it. And so we're going to do this over a series of classes, but today really begin trying to look at uh, overall vision of ethics and the things associated with it. Uh, as you remember from last year, um, for those who took the class, that ethics, moral theology, is somewhat of a mess, but it really is going to impact in a special way all areas but sexual ethics. So I'm going to make a circle here, and here is sexual ethics, the church's teaching. Because of moral relativism, uh, emotivism, the lack of meaning, the sexual revolution, our understanding or the culture's understanding of sexual morality is discarded or twisted. It's a lot of the stuff that we saw last year. There's no purpose, no telos, because of the loss of metaphysics. The, the act doesn't have an end. And I'm not saying that from the Catholic perspective, but from the secular perspective. Sex then becomes basically what? Well, what, what is sex basically for people today? If there's not a purpose, what is it for? Pleasure. Pleasure. Not procreation, but recreation. And if there's anything that, that governs, anything that really governs sexual ethics in a secular view, it can be boiled down to basically one word. Anyone want to guess what you think that one word would be? You hear it over and over and over again. One word that would boil down sexual ethics in a secular perspective. Consent. It's consent. It's all about consent. That's what it really comes down to. But even then, maybe as we'll see, consent becomes kind of trick, tricky. Of course, it's all connected to the loss of meaning, the death of the transcendent, and freedom as autonomy. Um, and I think also, as we'll see during the course of the semester, a lot of brokenness, a lot of pain, a lot of shame. But it's led to a very specific sort of culture, a way of understanding or living in the world. Pornified culture, the hookup culture, but also, particularly within the course of the past 15 to 20 years, the ascendancy of what we call or what is called the LGBTQ plus issues. And we've gotten to the point now where not only is there confusion about how we ought to behave, but there's also a lot of confusion about what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman. This is the realm here generally of sexual ethics. And as a church and future priests, we're going to be called to respond, to engage, to potentially dialogue. And, and in doing so within the church, and also as we talked about evangelizing outside of the church, we're going to still have to confront another attitude that still sees morality particularly sexual ethics as a bunch of laws and rules imposed from without. Patriarchy, the man's telling me what to do. And as a result, the question often becomes the sort of minimalism. 
how much can I get away with? That's particularly in the area of Catholic ethics. And as we saw last year, hopefully you remember this, this ought not be our ethical system. The system of voluntarism, the system of the manuals, something that comes from the interior. But yet, I, I think it's still fairly prevalent, although we've seen a renewal of seminary formation in an attempt to present a more scriptural and virtue-based moral theology from the interior, as we're going to talk about even more. A chastity, that, cell, that the purity has to come from the heart. It's not just about imposed rules from the outside. It's Matthew chapter 19. But there's been something else that we've got to consider, at least in the way that the church has addressed um, sexual ethics in a larger context. Within the past 50 years, thanks to Vatican II and John Paul II, besides uh, a simple focus on ethics and behavior, what has there been a focus on? Theology of the body, if you read the very beginning of it, we'll talk about it. John Paul II says, theology of the body is about what? Proposing an adequate anthropology. And we talked about this last year. And so the sexual ethics, and you could say sort of any ethical question, is going to be situated within the larger circle of anthropology. Our concept of who the human person is. That's why we spent so much time last semester talking about anthropology, man, his body and soul. Who the human person is, created as man and woman in the image of God. The importance of the body, of revealing the person. We'll talk about more about that a little bit later on. Why is this? Because we believe that doing flows from being. If we don't understand who we are, we're not going to understand how we ought to act. And so in my little spiel, and I think I sort of alluded to it last year, this is the second concentric circle. It's the same center. And if we have a flawed anthropology, we're going to have a flawed um, ethic. And so we are created in the image and likeness of God. We have an inherent dignity. We're called to, to self-gift, a total gift of self. That's the ethic um, of, of the body and of the ethic of the hermeneutics of the gift. And it's a contrast to a more secular anthropology, one that basically man is a random product of evolution. The body is reduced to... to to material. Brain is a wet machine, and there's no inherent meaning. There's no soul. There's no transcendence. And so as a result, we're called to define our own existence, that exercise of autonomy. And this meaning is often defined in the realm of sexuality and gender. We're going to see it becomes very important. And so for my sexual expression, then nothing should be able to limit it. Not even my body should limit it. And so we're going to talk about a little bit later, but particularly in bioethics, this idea of the human person as the disembodied will. 
body doesn't matter. The body's an obstacle. And so my will is what matters. What I choose are connected to uh, my own feelings, what I feel. And so if you have this anthropology where my, I need to satisfy my desires and that my freedom is the most important, then guess what? Your sexual ethic is going to flow from this. And so we've had this debate and this discussion of anthropology and the meaning of the body and the meaning of sexuality. Now, maybe I'm just a glasses-half-empty type of guy, but I don't think we've made that much headway. still have a large amount of Catholics who are not adhering to the church's teaching, uh, who are living lives sexually. Their behavior is in accord with what we call the natural law. And even though we've tried. And so what I want to ask the question is, why is this? So, you know, we have this great theology of the body. We, we establish an adequate anthropology. And so as we'll see, the natural law and our understanding of sexual ethics is rooted in the body and the way we communicate it. And I think to a certain extent, as we'll see, things are going well. But what are the re- what's the reason, or what do you think of the main reason is that this hasn't worked, and it's really, I don't think, working today. And it's the question that I posed to you at the end of the last class. We focus so much on ethics and behavior, but today the focus is different. What do you, what, what do you think the difference is? I, I just think back in the 50s, leading up to the 50s, that we saw a dramatic uh, breakdown of the family. And We're going to get to that. You're correct, but that is still a more historical thing. What are we facing today? What's the issue we're facing today? I think one problem is the discourse between the intellect and the will. They know it, but they haven't approached it. Absolutely true. I'm going to give you one more shot before I get to it. Technology? It influences it. We're going to get to it. But this is, again, and I think this is so important, and we can, I'm sure, maybe have a beer later and talk about it. In the past 40 years particularly since theology of the body, and really in the past 20 years, things have shifted. So the sense that when I was first ordained 22 years ago, I would teach about theology of the body. People loved it. And I'm not saying that we don't teach theology of the body today, but the truths presented are now presented in a radically different landscape. Even though it's tangentially, Uh, connected to behavior and anthropology, the focus today for our secular world and in the church is not about acts or behavior, but about this word right here. And you hear it all of the time. Identity. 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 So it's just a shift on the focus of anthropology. Well, in a way, yes. Exactly. It's, it's a shift on the fo- It is a shift. It is an expression of anthropology. There's another part that we're going to talk about, too, but you're correct. I agree. It's not about anthropology as something objective, but about my own identity. And as you'll see, my own subjective experience of my identity. And so this is sort of what Truman's book is about. The, the rise and triumph of the modern self. And so this quote, which I think it sort of sets his book and his thesis 
up is towards the beginning, he says, quote, in addressing the behavior that has come to prominence through the sexual revolution, we're actually not so much speaking of practices as we are speaking of identities. This is who I am. So LGBTQ, that doesn't deal with behavior. It deals with identities. And so, but if you criticize the behavior, then what are you doing? You're criticizing my identity. And you're hurting me. As we're going to see, it does not work out very well. And this is their philosophical and cultural roots to this. They go way back, and that's why I think it's important to understand it, to, to read Truman's book. But the question then is, yes, in a certain sense, an anthropological question, but it is who I am. My sexual choices, my gender expressions are, are all this expression of my individuality and of my identity. It's who I am. It's a phrase that, that a writer, I think it was a sociologist in the 80s, 90s, called expressive individualism. Robert Bella, B-E-L-L-A-H. And Truman talks about it, but there's some other stuff that we can get into that expresses it. Bella says, quote, expressive individualism holds that each person has a unique core of feeling and intuition that should unfold or be expressed if individuality is to be realized, unquote. And who, who's against that? We all want to be the best versions of ourselves. You be you. But in the world we have today, it becomes highly sexualized and connected to this idea of gender and identity. And so when you criticize the behavior, when you talk about the behavior, or even you talk about desires as being disordered, you're attacking the person. All right? You're attacking the person. Listen to Truman, and he's fleshing it out again. The person who objects to homosexual practice is, in contemporary society, actually objecting to homosexual identity. And the refusal by any individual to recognize an identity that society at large recognizes as legitimate is a moral offense, not simply a matter of indifference. The question of identity in the modern world is a question of dignity. For this reason, the various court cases in America concerning the provision of cakes and flowers for gay weddings are not ultimately about the flowers or the cakes. They're about the recognition of gay identity and according to members of the LGBTQ plus community, the recognition that they need in order to feel that they are equal members of society, unquote. So as Brent said, yes, the church is right in wanting to address anthropology but there's something deeper identity speaks to something which is deeply personal subjective and grounded in a different concept of the self and what he'll draw from Philip Reese's book the triumph of the therapeutic the psychologized self or, or my feelings matter where my will matters more than my body the interior life so hurting me and my desires or feelings, whatever you want to call them, is just as bad as stabbing me in my, my body because you're hurting me at the core of my being. But it's ultimately a triumph of the subjective over the objective because the way that we've dealt with anthropology 
has been pretty objective. We can take a step back and look at the human body, when we know what it's meant for. There's a little nuance we're going to mention in a second, but we have an anthropology that's primarily here subjective and rooted in one's sense of identity. All right? So, I mean, it is sort of tangential to this, but it's still connected to anthropology. But I think, in my own reflection, that there is another level. Because, yes? Can we maybe talk a little bit about, uh, I'm still, I've read this, I, I'm familiar with it, I've talked about it, but there's still some, I don't know, haziness and confusion in my mind about, about what identity means and why it's really different than action follows from being. And like, can we talk, maybe the, the word that comes to my mind that maybe might be helpful is character. You know, so you, your behavior sort of demonstrates your character or helps build up your character. Is that, is, is that a, a, a term that's helpful to, to juxtapose I, identity? Or I don't think so, but I think potentially the next term is that I'm about to give. And you can tell me if I'm wrong. Um, so in the Arab rally, the churches always emphasize objectivity, the objective moral law, the objective reality of the body and its inclinations. This is all the natural law. But our culture, there's been what I'll call a radical subjective shift. Objectivity is not what is emphasized or even really matters. But what's subjective, particularly the subjective experience. And we can maybe even further qualify it as personal experience. So in a certain sense, yeah, identity can be seen as objective character, but we have to focus on the subjective, interior, emotional, psychological, the personal experience of the individual that forms one's identity is essential. So how do we distinguish that from, I mean, John Paul II, the big thing that he seemed to integrate into uh, Thomistic thought is personalism. Oh. So why is, what, what's the nuance difference? We're, we're going we're gonna to get there. You're going to get there, because I'm bringing in John Paul II. Look at that. We're all, we have the hive mind here. We're working together. <laughs> so because of the sexualization of the culture, and we're going to see where this comes from, my experience as an individual being is primarily, or there's a great sexual dimension, and I, dimension of gender, of who I feel that I am, my sexual orientation, all of these things that I experience are primary, and they will even trump the objective reality of the body. And even more crazy is it can shift. Well, one day I feel this, tomorrow I feel this. It's all very fluid. There's nothing static. There's nothing fixed. 
And so you can speak about moral and anthropological truths. You can give a whole talk on theology of the body, but if it doesn't coincide with someone's experience, then it'll be dismissed. Or it will be seen as potentially threatening. In a certain sense, yes. So we're going to have to understand why that is. But we're going to, again, we're going to get to that a little bit. Not that it's so strong, but there's a philosophical and cultural hermeneutic that says, no, what really matters, it's the disembodied will. It's what you feel. Your subjective feeling experience is more important than your body. That's what's, because it's a different concept of the self. It's a different concept of itself, even though in a certain sense there's the denial of the spiritual and the transcendent, still what you feel is more important than the body. And in a lot of this, you're going to have to do the reading to sort of understand the, the, the deeper thread of thought. And so here's the thing. The standard of truth becomes one's experience since morality is relative. Since the subjective experience is the most important. And, and I'll say, as Christians and as Catholics and as nice people, we ought to respect and even, quote-unquote, validate the experience of others. I can't tell you that you're not experiencing that. Or you shouldn't experience that in a certain sense. You're experiencing what you're experiencing. And I have no access to your interior life. And so, you know, regardless if it's where it comes from, regardless if uh, transgender, same-sex, pansexual, call it whatever you want to call it, whatever you're experiencing, there are people who do experience this. And they do say, instead of, I am experiencing it, it is constitutive of my identity. You can't disregard the fact that people are experiencing that. And they're experiencing it today in a culture that is not the same with the different social imagination, social imaginary than they were 40 years ago. But how do we do this? How do I say, I respect your experience and even try to integrate the experience while still respecting the objectivity of the body, biology, and the moral law? And, and as Mr. Zeldin said, John Paul II tried to do this. But he did it in a different time, a couple of generations ago. I'm so unique for a pope to do this. He said, like, hey, we're going to kind of work backwards, as we'll see. We're going to take the, the truths revealed in Scripture about the meaning of the person and the Imago Dei and, and man and woman, and we're going to use our own human experience of our bodies, of fallenness, but also of gift and of love to try to reconstruct and understand what this was like. And so he draws from human experience as a good phenomenologist. Now, granted, I think he's going to say, well, I'm experiencing this, but it's not the subjective experience that we have is not what's the most important, but the fact that it coincides with objective reality. Particularly in the realm of sexuality, objective reality, the moral norms, and these things like man and woman, male and female, are given. 
so from the Catholic perspective, this is what John Paul II tries to do, and I think, as we're going to see, you got to give me a little time, you know how this works, to get to that argument, how we integrate experience. I think in some sense, it may be what Pope Francis is talking about, about the difference between ideas and ideology and reality. Now, I, this is a more complex argument, too, which we'll get into, but like we have these, for Francis starts with these ideas of, of how theology and how we should act and all this kind of stuff, but then we have the reality of people's experience, and it seems not to coincide. Now, some will interpret this, and I'm not saying Francis does this, and I'm surely not saying that I'm doing this, that, well, let's go back to before Veritatis Splendor, where there's no objective moral truth, and this is the person who's choosing to do it. And so there's this proportionalism that we, we bring down the moral law to the individual. But God changes the moral law. Again, that argument is more complicated than that. But this distinction between experience and objective reality and the moral law is an area of tension, which, which we we're agreeing to. But here's the fun part. With all of this here, there is another level that makes it even more difficult and even more complicated. And it's a level that, to be frank, affects all of it. It's our third concentric circle. Call it what you want, but it's worldview. Hermeneutic, I don't care what you call it. It's the big picture. The overall worldview and conception of reality that we have. Our vision, our hermeneutic, our narrative. And, and so this affects, worldview affects anthropology, anthropology affects sexuality. And of course, worldview also affects sexual ethics. To understand what is the secular worldview. And I'm not trying to, to establish this binary between, well, we have a Catholic worldview and a secular worldview. It's probably more complicated than that. But in the time that I have to be able to achieve what I'm trying to achieve, I don't have time to get into that. And so the worldview that affects all of this, the sec, we'll call it the secular worldview, potentially, and I don't mean this in a negative sense, the nihilistic worldview, nihilism meaning nothing. That there's no metaphysics, there's no transcendent behind it. And we, we looked at that a lot last year when it came to the class on the loss of meaning, the, the impact of Occam and nominalism. But it's a worldview where there's no mystery, no transcendence, no metaphysics, nothing is sacred. It's a disenchanted world. Charles Taylor in the secular age, which is probably right now the text that is, boy, it's difficult to get through, that best explains this worldview. He begins by talking about before the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution, the concept of self was one as a porous self. But like, there are these forces in nature and this mystery, and we commune with it. But now he calls it the buffered self, that, that I'm my own individual person, and there, there's no spiritual world. So I'm in a certain sense 
buffered from all of these metaphysical forces. His argument's more complicated, but basically you have a world with no God. As we saw last year, there's not going to be inherent meaning, inherent structure. And so we have to impose meaning, we have to impose structure. The mimesis versus the poesis of looking at the meaning and understanding it as it reveals to us versus we impose the meaning. That's Kant's Copernican revolution. And, and, and a lot of this worldview you can read about in Charles Taylor, Taylor, Truman in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, brings it out. But there's another thing that I think you'll studied in Dr. Um, James's course. What am I getting his name wrong? Not James. Huh? No, who, who are your philosophy professors? Oh, Jacobs. Jacobs. Yeah, Jacobs. Yeah. I think you, you mentioned it. it is, we, we throw this term around, but the technical philosophical term of postmodernism or poststructuralism, postconstructivism. Did y'all talk about that? Derrida, Foucault, all of that wonderful stuff, the French critical school? Uh, no. Critical theory. We talk all this stuff about race theory and gender theory and queer theory and whatever theory. It all has its roots in something that comes after the existentialism of the first part of the 20th century coming to fruition in the late 60s, 70s, and early 80s, particularly with thinkers like Jacques Derrida and Michel Foucault, who we're going to look at a little bit more later. And look, stuff is not easy to read. Doesn't make much sense at all. Uh, a lot of how I've come to understand of it in different books. I think have y'all heard of the book Cynical Theories by the authors Pluckrose and Lindsay? I forget their first names. They're actually old school liberals who believe the Enlightenment is really good, and so they rip all of this critical theory to shreds. But basically, this postmodernism is a rejection of modernity, which is the enlightenment and the scientific revolution. They're truths and values. And so, in a certain sense, it's really marked by skepticism and deconstructivism. We're going to break apart this system of looking at the world. And there are major themes, basically the skepticism, a commitment to deconstruct a critical approach, that's why they call it critical theory, a blurring of boundaries, all these boundaries of heterosexual, homosexual, male, female, uh, disabled, not disabled, uh, races, whatever. We're breaking all these boundaries down because these were just imposed from the outside, primarily through language and narrative. There's no truth out there. This is Derrida. What constructs the truth is our language, the narrative that we make. As a result, it's all subjective. Each individual person or culture is able to make their own truths. And any truths that are there are pre-exist. Even truths from science are all expressions of power. These systems of power. And this is where Foucault comes in. And again, I'm not an expert on Foucault. I've read some of his history of sexuality, and I'm trying to be able to convey this to y'all and not make you read it. Um, even though it might be helpful, that it's not like, it's not Marxism. 
and this goes beyond Marxism, which is the thing that I really came to understand. Marxism is there's two classes and they're fighting each other. And we're going to look at a little bit about that in the Frankfurt School. But here, power is disseminated, according to Foucault, in a grid. Power is everywhere. In our language, in our systems, it's not just... And so we, you can't fight the power because the power is there. You don't even know where the power is. You think that you're a feminist, but you really are part of the problem. And so there's this sort of suspicion. Exactly. Yeah, it could be. You don't know anything. And so, but we can work for change, but it's going to be very political and we're going to have to trouble the waters. And this is where you understand this basic principle. This is where gender theory is going to come from when we talk about this in a few classes. But all of it, this post-modernity, this world in which we live, we can have a lot of different terms, but this worldview, probably the best term that I've heard, is the term liquid modernity. Have you all heard of this? Modernity. I think I may have talked about it a little bit. And it was coined, I think, in about the year 2000 by a Polish, Polish? philosopher, thinker named Zygmunt, Z-Y-G-M-U-N-T, Bauman, B-A-U-M-A-N. Trying to read Bauman, who was a Marxist, but is like trying to read Foucault or Judith Butler. It's really difficult. And his argument is basically that we used to have in society these very fixed institutions, the family, government, religion, but as a result of the changes of modernity and then really post-modernity and deconstructionism, we live in this liquid world now. One of his, like his interesting arguments is the way time has changed because of the ability to travel quickly. Usually to go from Lafayette to Baton Rouge, if you had to walk or go by horse, it would be maybe two days. But now I get there in 45 minutes, depending on the traffic on the bridge. So all of a sudden, space and time have collapsed. It's all become liquid talks about politics and all these different things. And so it becomes sort of a, a catch-all term that people use. One of the books that I, I'll recommend, it's called Dedicated by Pete Davis, came out last year. And he talks about how this has affected so many different areas of life, including sexuality and love. Bauman will say that too, because he started writing all these different books based off of liquid modernity. There's one called Liquid Love. And how this... This worldview, this post this is his words. Liquid modernity is his words for postmodernism. So I'll give you this uh, quote from Pete Davis in his book, Dedicated. We never want to commit to any one identity or place or community, Bauman explains, so we remain like liquid in a state that can adapt to fit any future shape. And it's not just us. The world around us remains like liquid, too. We can't rely on any job or role, idea or cause, group or institution to stick around for the same form for long. And they can't rely on us to do so either. That's liquid modernity, what he calls infinite browsing mode. We're always browsing. We're always changing. We're always shifting. There's nothing solid. And this idea of a liquidity, of fluidity, you've heard this before. It impacts a lot, but particularly the idea of the person, their identity, even in their bodies, and of sexual ethics. 
besides the fact that, hey, we have the hookup culture and there's no commitment, it's really about identity. The LGBTQ issues. There's no, there's no binary. It's all fluid. We're on a spectrum. And so you have these terms, gender fluid, gender queer, and it changes from person to person. And even the person can change by the minute. I'm, 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 I'm this today and I'm that tomorrow. It's all fluid. And it's led to decisions like in 2014 for Facebook to make 56 custom genders. Everything is customized. Everything is individualized. And we can laugh at it, but there's a logic behind it. There are thoughts that started in academia that got into the social imaginary. And so it's all relativized. It's all subjectified. I am constructing my own identity. There's nothing firm to grasp onto. Same goes with our orientation. You know, I'm bisexual, pansexual. Go, go look at all, you know, there used to be the, the pride flag, and now there are all kinds of pride flags because there are all kinds of different identities and different experiences, different ways of living it out. And so the question then becomes, how do we even begin to address this? Because the, the ethic, the anthropology, and the worldview, which we're going to get to, which is the Catholic sacramental worldview, you talk in two different languages here. It's two different ways of perceiving things. And a lot of this secular perspective has seeped into the minds of people, particularly the younger generation. And the way that I said that homilies and talks that I gave 20 years ago, I could give today. But I might be speaking a different language than a lot of people. But also, I might really upset some people because they're going to take it personally. And so how do we best communicate the gospel? And what I think we have to do, or at least I want to do, in as brief a period as we can, is try to understand where this all came from how we got here. And we can simply say, this is stupid, and we dismiss it. Okay, but we've got to give a counter-argument. We have to address what they're talking about rather than just putting up straw men and tearing them down. Now, some of this stuff is difficult to understand, and again, I can only give you a very broad, cursory overview of things. And yeah, they're philosophical and cultural factors, but there are also some pretty significant historical ones. And that's going to be, let's say, I'm, I'm making the roadmap for the next few classes. Um, we're going to have to sort of ask questions like, if y'all understand what I'm talking about here, how do we preach objective sexual morality and the meaning of the body in a world that has become liquid, fluid, and where personal experience is much more important than the body, where the body is even a scandal. And we can look at all the interior uh, contradictions and the different issues and the cancel culture and the identity politics that flow from it, and we can, we can call it out. Fine, but what kind of counter-argument are we giving and is a valid counter-argument? And so I think we're going to go and do something that I didn't do last year, is look at the historical evolution of this. 
but really within the past hundred or so years, and particularly in the realm, not so much of the changing worldview, you can read Charles Taylor and Truman and all that to see how that happened. We talked about it a lot last year. Anthropology, the different concepts of the person, you can read those things too. But it's really in the area of sex and sexuality from an historical perspective. And so we're going to look next time, particularly the 20th century, and we're going to look at it right up to that breaking point where we sort of pass into what we would call postmodernity and the sexual revolution, what led up to it and what came after it. What, what led to the sexual revolution? Because if you don't understand that, no, you're not going to really understand any of this. But then at the same time, there's another track of history going on, and that's within the church. And so that's going to be Wednesday's class, where we kind of go back over the past hundred or so years to look at the changes within the church and how it tried to address some of these issues. Going back to Costa Canubi, Vatican II, uh, Humani Vitae, John Paul II. But then we're going to jump to the next class, and I'm going to do my best to explain something which I had read this book, and Truman doesn't really get into it. Um, and most of my summers, I said, was spent reading this, is gender theory as a... a academic, intellectual endeavor. We can, we can call it an ideology, as Pope Francis does, and there are certainly ideological strains, but I think in fairness for us to really understand what we're dealing with and potentially try to come up with a solution, um, you've got to understand this. You've got you to at least know the name Judith Butler. She's not all the end-all, be-all of gender theory, but whenever I began, I read some of her stuff, boy, that's difficult, and some commentaries on it, I understood, as crazy as we think it is, that we question whether or not we know what a woman is, and you can laugh it off, and you can make fun of it all you want, but, and we can, dis we can argue against the thinking, but there's some thought behind this. It's not just about, I want to do what I want to do, as much as that may inform it. There is some thought from academic professors behind this. And what that argument is, and I'll try to convey it as best as I understand and give you things to read. And then, the next class, which will sort of round everything off, we're going to try to say, like, looking at all of this and the situation we're in, before we get into looking at anthropology and ethics and all these things that we need to really look at, what are some things that we can do? What are some of the things that we do have and are going to be important to really address, at least what I believe is the, the core issue here? And um, I'm still working on that and putting this together. Like I said, I had done this all at the beginning last year, but this year I cho chose to take all the puzzle pieces all apart and put them back together in a different way and knowing that I had to put them together in about a 55-minute span of time uh, to be able to communicate them. So that's why the readings, some of the readings you had for today, I changed this this morning. And so we're making some, some calls, a little uh, 
a little, uh, what do you call it? The quarterback. He's audible. So make it an audible. So you're going to go along with me. Um, and I'm not going to penalize you for it because you're going to end up reading the things that I told you you should read. Um, but that's where I want y'all to think about. Because Josh's question is, is, is extremely valid. If experience is the most important, and we can talk about it, like well, how, how does this relate to identity and, and different concepts of identity? And while we can respect that, that there is subjective experience, but we're going to say, oh no, not only is there objective reality, but there's also revelation on top of that. Christ has come to reveal the, the, the mystery of redemption and salvation without just saying, you people are wrong, this is the truth. How do we, like John Paul II, try to speak to experience while not relativizing um, not only biology, but more importantly, certain deep spiritual truths? But we're going to look at that a little bit later on. Yes? So when it comes to just the way you've been laid out between personal experience and identity, is, is personal experience for liquid modernity a passive or active uh, object? That's a good question. Again, I... I I would say it is probably a little bit of both, probably in a certain sense more passive because this is where we get to it. All these identities are still socially constructed. And so it is influencing you whether you realize it or not, but yet you still have your ability to choose and in a certain sense work within the frame of this and it does, it seems like a contradiction. But I would say probably they both interact somehow. Uh, I, the reason I ask is like a lot of my uh, acquaintances, shall we say, who are more of the, the left than, uh, for, for them, the identity is something that needs to be discovered and experimented with, mm-hmm. which would then make personal experience more active than passive. Like you need to go. How do you know you don't like men? How do you know you're not bisexual if you've never had sex with a man before? Uh-huh. So you need to go out and try it. And experience it, yeah. And so this is very valid. And this is, in a certain sense, you would call it a contradiction. But I think to postmodernism, they won't mind there's a contradiction because they're just saying, postmodernism and particularly queer theory, gender theory, is not here to construct a truth because there is no truth. We're here to just trouble the waters. To, to queer things up, as they may say. And so, yeah, you're right. You've got to experiment, but still, where is that, that intersection between social constructivism and the power that's coming down and telling you how to live and who you are versus your own experience and your own experimentation? And this is why it's so hard to pin down. It's so hard to pin down, not only because everybody's experience is different, but as I'm trying to put this class together on gender ideology, I I don't even know how to define it. I don't know how to describe it. And it's so changing and fluid and one thing is one thing and there's inner fighting and all this inner Nicene argumentation. How do you, I I can't explain something unless I can analyze it and I can't analyze it until I can pin it down. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, you're not. That's we're we're getting to that. Okay. We got we got to wait to the end. <laughs> so look at that. It is the high mind. I there we have a whole section on that. Yeah. Chew on it, mm-hmm. come back. I mean, that's the difficulty is because we want to read from cover to cover, but that's that's where the Holy Spirit is is working in this. this no, I, this is, the book being Theology of the Body. I agree. I am not denying this at all. We're going to look at, at the evolution of where this came from, and and I think there are things in there. I mean, I wrote on John Paul II. I went to his his, his institute. I believe this. The question comes, how do we take it now? If John Paul II wrote Theology of Body today, I think he'd do it differently. He'd have to do it differently. Well, we're going to get to that. (laughs) This is the thing, y'all. Part of this is, y'all are moving into priesthood. We talk about this with bioethics. Y'all are moving into new territory that there is like, this shifting change. It's like the freaking Matrix. It's it is. It's like the Matrix. And we're going to watch the Matrix. Yeah. Because the Matrix is not about what you think it's about. It is. <laughs> it is completely about that. And they've said it's about that. So, we're going to, so yes, the Matrix, you're living the Matrix is about change, transitioning. That's what the whole movie is really technically about. I gave it away. Anyhow, we'll have a chance to watch it. Look, the resources, the resources there haven't posted them yet. But it is. Everything's changing. It's moving. I don't have the answers to this. I can say, yeah, we have these different tools and these resources. But the question then becomes, how do we use them? I think John Paul II would have – there's a given that he has – of the, the, the binary of male and female, which we agree with. I, I'm not going to deny this at all. I'm going to stick to it really hard. But how do you convey it to a people? And John Paul II would have wanted this. He, the whole reason he wrote Theology of the Body, the whole reason is because he realized that the traditional natural law arguments present in Humanae Vitae, while valid, didn't speak to modernity. And so he tried to shift it by taking the natural law, as I said, outside of the act and planning it in the person. But have we, we tried it, it's great, but has, I, in my own experience, it's, it's sort of the, the fruit was growing, then all of a sudden, poof, it stopped. Or at least it didn't produce as much fruit. And so I still think we have the tool there in this idea of theology of the body and what lies behind it the ultimate argument that, again, I'm going to propose these making, which we're going to look at. But how do we apply it? This is going to take some time to figure it out. That's why I really can't answer a lot of your questions. I don't fully understand what's going on. I don't Go try to read Michel Foucault or Judith Butler, you know, and how it influences things. And there are things being written about this because this all really started in the early 90s. The seeds were there before. But the changes really started there, began in the early 90s, and really came to fruition about the beginning of the 2000, 2005, when stuff in academia transferred into the social imaginary. And now it's everywhere. And I don't know, it's like the Rona. Got out of Wuhan by a lab, and here it is everywhere. How do we deal with it? 
I don't know. Disney yes. There, there, there is a question. Well, just on like, the geology of the body, people always want to joke that as a resource stands for questions, but often they'll still say, well, this isn't a system that fully answers these questions. That, to me, means it's a failed system. But I think because of its personalism is why it fails, because it's always going to be subjective. Whereas human nature doesn't change. So in a sense, natural law, there's, I don't see an insufficient seed there in the same way, because it can always answer the question. Well, I don't think John Paul II is saying that it's insufficient. He's just saying, trying to deepen it in order to be able to communicate to a generation who doesn't buy those traditional arguments. And, and again, if I'm not mistaken, what you're trying to say is this the distinction between a sort of uh, scholastic, Thomistic, even neo-Thomistic approach versus uh, the bringing in a phenomenology and personalism into theology through the Nouvelle Theologie, and is, this seems to be a failed system. Is it a failed system? Has it not been applied correctly? Has modernity changed? I, listen, y'all, and I think these are all valid discussions, and part of what I said at the beginning is I want y'all to think through these things. I think you have a lot of the basic tools. John Paul II's teaching is a Wednesday audience. If you want to get into magisterial issues, Wednesday audience is a pretty low on the level, but yet there's truth there, and it's hard to understand. And how do we flesh this out and understand it? But even more importantly, and which is the pastoral goal, which the PPF talks about, we've got to be able to explain it to people. And the, the culture and the world they lived in and the changes to now and what led to the changes, and particularly one of the big things that led to changes is the Internet and social media and the dissemination of information and the way now through social media, I can form my own identity online, uh, which is really an ethereal thing. So I'm, I'm so used to living in this disembodied realm as it relate back to my own consciousness. We're not gonna be able to solve all this, or I can't discuss it all in class. A lot of it is going to be for y'all just reading. If y'all wanna have cocktail night or beer night and talk about it and get arguments over it, this is what we're here for. Most theology is, when I was in seminary, was not done in class, but was done uh, at the lounge and, and talking these things through. Because while there are clear truths about the dignity of the human person and sexuality that are rooted in a much deeper sacramental order, that you can't, you toss sexual difference and importance out, you basically toss the whole spousal analogy out. And there's a spiritual dimension. But like you said, we just, we gotta, we got to recognize it, but we can't just say, oh, if it's all spiritual, let's pray the rosary and get rid of it. Well, why are you even in theology? You know, this is you're here to understand it and to be able to work with these truths in a world and particularly in a culture and system focused on identity that is always shifting. So we are come back. This is great for you all to think about. I'm going to rearrange some of the readings. Don't get mad at me. I'm not going to penalize you all for it. But we'll come back and look at the sexual revolution. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. From the beginning, is now, and shall be, or without end. Amen. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.